All right. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome you to today's episode of Bible News Radio. Hey, if you're new to the show, I want to thank you for joining us today because today what we're going to do, ah, I love this. Okay, so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, and that is Christians engaging the culture. Now, I don't know about you, but it was probably about, eh, I don't know, almost 30 years ago, I happened to tune on, turn on C-SPAN, and there was this lady on there uh, talking about the meaning of patriotism, and she's talking about it from a biblical worldview. Well, it turns out that person was Janet Parshall, who actually hosted a show at the time called Janet Parshall's America, and... I was enamored right off. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a woman. She's talking about issues from a biblical perspective. And I started to listen to her. And uh, really, she became like a mentor to me for many, many years. I listened to her and, and learned a whole bunch of things about how to engage the culture from a biblical worldview, the difference between relativism and absolute truth, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, I have to tell you, I got, I got to meet her and learn from her, and I was just so excited. So <laughs> I bring that up because one of the very first places I heard today's guest was on her show, and the book that we're going to be talking about today with my guest uh, Joe Dallas is actually endorsed by her. So um, I am super excited today. We're going to talk about uh, Joe Dallas's new book, Christians in a Canceled Culture. And um, we have a whole hour with him, and we're just going to cut to the chase. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Hey, thank you for having me. Good to see you, Trace. Stacy. No problem. I. <laughs> I I actually I actually I'm so excited to have you here because you know what oh. I I know that you know your stuff and you are one of my heroes when it comes to being able to defend uh, most of the issues that most Christians deal with uh, tactfully, firmly, uh, and biblically um, in our culture, homosexuality being one of those. Um, but because you're new to the show and most people don't know who you are in my audience, I would love for you to share part of your testimony with people just so that you can, you know, let people know a little bit about your background. That's good. Yeah, well, this whole idea of a Christian engaging the culture, it's not just academic to me. Uh, I was at odds with the church uh, for, oh, about six, seven years when I was a gay activist from about 1978 to 1984. Uh, and, and at that time, I was on staff with a pro-gay church, and I really was committed to gay activism. And as a result, I was watching carefully the way the church responded to social issues, the way they talked about us as gays and lesbians, the way they talked about abortion, the way they talked about race, the way they talked about patriotism, which you brought up. I mean, a, a lot of what we felt we were compelled to do was to carefully scrutinize all that Christians said and then try to find a way to challenge it so that we could discredit the church. And really, the kind of activism I was a part of, Stacy, was committed largely to discrediting the Christian position so that we could make more room for our position, for our revision, which is basically what I think when, when we look at this kind of beyond the gay issue— yeah, yeah all, all of it put together, identity politics, the, the pro-choice movement, feminism, etc. Largely, it's about revising our understanding of basics, what the human experience is meant to be, what is justice supposed to be, what really entails prejudice or hatred or fairness. And, and so uh, what, what we were committed to doing was finding ways to prove that the church did not stand for those things. Now, I was committed to that largely because I became a Christian when I was 16. I had, by that time, already known I was attracted to the same sex. I had had multiple relations with adult men. Uh, a girl I was dating in high school took me to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa in 1971, right at the beginning of what we call the Jesus Movement. Uh -huh. That's when I got saved. And uh, that was an amazing time, wonderful time. But one of the problems of the time, and I don't necessarily fault the movement for this, but one of the, the problems I think many of us experienced was we thought the Lord was coming Tuesday. Right. <laughs> before lunch, probably. I mean, so we were like, get moving, preach the gospel, drop everything, go into full-time ministry, which I did. 
as a very, very young man. And I hadn't dealt properly with my own soul, my own sexuality, my own desires, my own framework. So I had gifting from God, but I didn't have the maturity to sustain the gifting. And as a result, I just pushed down my sexual feelings and thought, well, they'll go away, ignore them. And uh, that did not play out, inevitably. Uh, after about six, seven years of, of uh, really fervently serving God, I just let myself get burned out. I gave myself permission to start using porn and then to start visiting gay bars and then eventually to declare myself not only openly gay, but openly gay and openly Christian when I joined a gay affirming church and then openly gay Christian and activist. Mm. So I think one of the reasons I became so intolerant, and this to me is an important point, uh, Stacey, I really did not want to listen to my own conscience or to the conviction of the Holy Spirit or to remember the grounding of the word that I had gotten as a young man. And and I think you know how that plays out. If you don't want to listen to what your internal voice, your conscience is telling you and the spirit of God is telling you, what the word of God tells you. If you're choosing to ignore that, if you want to mute that, you're going to also have to mute whoever is saying something that would come into agreement with it. And this, of course, was my problem. I was was hearing voices from the church when I would listen to Christian radio or watch Christian TV or or converse with born-again believers. I was hearing voices that were coming into agreement with the conscience I was trying to silence. And thereby, I determined I need to silence those voices. I can't tolerate that. And I believe to this day, this is what we are seeing when we when we talk about cancel culture. I think a large part of what is fueling cancel culture is a troubled conscience. I think a lot of people don't feel really at their core, don't feel right about what they're doing or how they're living, but they are choosing to live it out anyway. And they are demanding that those of us whose messages, whose beliefs would come in alignment with their own consciences that they're trying to ignore, they're demanding that they be able to ignore us as well. Well, we're not trying to push ourselves on them. Right. I mean, good night. We didn't choose this battle, you know, um, but we're responding to these demands. Well, I used to make those demands so I can understand to a large extent where a lot of the demanders are coming from. But in 1984, I had a crisis of truth. And this is something I think, first of all, every individual eventually has to ask. And then secondly, every believer must ask is, do I really believe in what I'm doing? I had to especially ask myself, am I within God's will? And if I'm not, does it matter? And I had to say no to the first and yes to the second. And that's when I realized, well, I've been kidding myself. Then I've been reading into the Bible what I wanted it to say, but I haven't really been accepting what it has to say, what God has said about what he intended my sexuality to be. So it started with obedience. And, and I think, you know, you, you, can, you can attest to this in the work that you've done over the years. Um, so much of what we grow into begins when we basically start like Saul of Tarsus. Okay, Lord, you've knocked me off my horse. What would you have me to do? I don't know where this is going. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't get the whole picture, but I'll just start with obedience. What would you have me to do? That's where I start. I didn't think in terms of, am I going to have my homosexual feelings converted into heterosexual ones? Am I going to get married? Am I going to stay single and celibate? What's going to happen to me? I don't know. I had no idea. All I knew was get back to the basics. I had to relocate to another county. I had to get grounded in a Bible-believing church. I did find, by the grace of God, a good Christian therapist. And you can appreciate how God was watching me on this one, uh, Stacy. I had no idea where to look. So I just went to the yellow pages. Now, that's not smart, and I don't recommend it. But in my case, it paid off, and I just went, Duh, okay, that's a nice name. I'll pick it. <laughs> where I wound up, and, and praise God, I, I was being guided to a very good Christian therapist who worked with me for well, about a couple of years. Mm-hmm. on a lot of the the damage I had done to my own soul and a lot of the damage that had been done to me, I had survived sexual molestation and I had had a rough upbringing in a lot of ways. And there were a lot of old wounds I had to deal with. And uh, within about, oh, I'd say a year and a half to two years, I had met the woman who I married in 1987, my wife, Renee. Yeah. And she uh, is now the uh, well, mother of my two grown sons. 
and also does a lot of work with me in the ministry that I've had by the grace of God since 87, when I started working with men who were like me. And I guess this is one reason I feel so strongly both about the cancel culture struggle and about the compassion issue. Um, I did not realize how many people there are within the body of Christ who wrestle with the issues that we are also talking to the culture about. I really felt like I was a one in a million story. There couldn't be very many Christians who dealt with homosexuality. Come on, how can that be? Well, the, uh, and traditionally, I got to say, that's the way the churches approach the subject. It's a problem out there, right? not a problem we have. And once I realized how many people within the church are internally struggling with, it can be with addictions, with alcoholism, with pornography, with homosexuality, with promiscuity, with depression, who knows? Issues that we talk about is that they don't exist within the church. There's the compassion end where we need to shepherd our own, but there is also the need to speak to the culture prophetically and be able to say, we have a creator, this is not what he intended, and there is wisdom in turning from it and towards his ways, and then also defending our right to speak, to minister, to be what we are meant to be in fulfilling the Great Commission which is to preach the gospel and make disciples. We can't do those two if we can't speak truth. That's impossible. So that's a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> that is why I feel so strongly about cancel culture. This is a broad issue that will have a lot to do with our willingness to um, not just express the faith, but now to also defend the faith, to be apologist, which I think we all should be. I really do. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I'm glad that you took a little bit longer. It's okay, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> I am. Um, um, I I'm really glad you shared your testimony because one of the things that you said here, I actually wrote it down so I didn't forget, was you said that you had a crisis of truth. And mm. um, and you know what? I think I think a lot of us have that. I have a I have a little bit similar background to yours. Um, I also had you know an abusive background and. I thought I was gay too. And I'd become a Christian in high school. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, obviously. Um, but God, again, did the same thing that he did with you. He guided me to a therapist, uh, miraculous in my opinion to this day. I still know her and love her. Um, but he guided me to a therapist too, that, that actually helped me with some core issues because my conscience was pricked. And I think our society today is, well, the seared conscience in Romans 1, you know, it, it, our, right. our consciences are seared so much that, I mean, you look at, and this maybe this is just me, I'm 53, I consider myself a prude, if you will. <laughs> you know, I don't like to watch TV at all, because there's so much immorality in it that, I mean, I get tempted, you know, and of course, my temptations go towards men now at this point. Um, cause I was, I was able to understand why I was feeling the way I did about women. Um, but like even studying the gay activist culture, if you go to the gay activist websites, oh my gosh, you know, there's nothing but men in underwear, you know, on these sites. And it's like, okay, I can't even do that anymore to see what the other side's doing because of my own, you know, fleshly weakness. Yeah. So being able to, you know, be truthful with that and then actually being obedient, and I like that word obedient. People don't like the word obedient. Oh, you know, especially as a woman, don't get married because, you know, you'll have to obey your husband. And, you know, like that's a horrible, rotten thing, right? Not. It's not. If you have a husband that loves you like Jesus loves the church, it's not a bad thing at all. When Um, I married my wife and we were saying (laughs) our vows, when we got to uh, her time to say love, honor, and obey, she literally started choking. (laughs) And we all, I mean, it brought the house down. <laughs> okay, this is going to be good. I don't think I but have I that agree. in mind. <laughs> so, um, so I, I was watching another interview that you did with somebody. I won't say who it was, but I had to laugh when they were, they were trying to tell everybody that they were not trying to put you on the spot because, you know, I don't think they realized how much stuff you've put up with as far as how to deal with stuff. I know your book talks a lot about, um, you know, the stuff going on and, and, you know, the, the cancel culture, even my show, which years ago had millions of downloads on it has just been silenced by YouTube. We got one strike on the show recently because we talked about the vaccine mandate 
and we gave oh, both sides of the story. We, we we gave both sides of the story. We did, <laughs> and they gave us a strike. So and and then we got another strike because we had somebody politically on that they didn't want to hear about the George Floyd thing, and you know, and I'm like, okay, strike two. You could be strike three, Joe. Just so you know. <laughs> I, I can't imagine them liking me anymore than first. Uh, who knows? Guess, but the the insane part. The only reason I bring that up is I'm not going to be silenced. But you have a you have a quote here. Whenever truth is told, someone is inconvenienced, right? Yeah. So it's like, Absolutely. how do Christians tell the truth about an issue when the big media is silencing us and we want our message to get out to the secular world? I think we have to recognize the mandate we have, which is not a mandate to be well-received. We have a mandate to be faithful ambassadors. There's the difference. Now, I want to be well-received. I think it'd be a little weird if I enjoyed being banned or silenced or getting into fights with people on that. I, you know, we're not called to be contentious, but um, there are times the culture is putting our backs up against the wall. And uh, this is why I say we are defending, not imposing. I'm not going out to the world and imposing anything on the world by expressing I'm not imposing. And if, you know, and if somebody tells me I don't want to talk to you, I'm like, word, I'm not going to tackle them and and keep preaching at them. But uh, in in most cases, the pushback we're getting is for what we communicate to each other, Stacey. I mean, there, there are times we speak directly to the culture, of course, and that's fine. We should. But a good deal of what we are silenced for is really a communication between us and us, things we are saying on our own YouTube shows, our own churches, our own television shows, the the books we write, my book written to Christian men who share my belief about homosexuality and want to overcome it. That was banned by Amazon about a year and a half ago, along with a few other books. Ann Paltz was uh, one of the others. So um, this is why I say, when our backs are up against the wall, we take a cue from Peter when he told the uh, council at the temple, when they said, hey, you can't preach in the name of Jesus any longer. They said, well, you know, judge for yourselves whether or not it's right to uh, obey God or man. But for our part, we uh, can't help but speak the things we've seen and heard. We have to express If We can't express. We cannot live out our faith. Now, I want to say that carefully enough to point out that doesn't mean we should be jerks. I don't, if I'm being offensive, if I'm being rude, if I'm inconsiderate, if I'm inappropriate and somebody silences me, I am not being persecuted. That's pushback for me acting like a jerk. But if I am um, operating in good conscience with consideration and clarity, and as a result of me simply being who I am, expressing myself, especially to the community of believers who share my beliefs with me, uh, and then as appropriate in conversations with co-workers, friends, family members, or if I'm being interviewed on a secular television show, being honest about where I stand and why I stand where I stand, uh, then I can't assume that if I get banned, silenced, taken down, pushed at, back at or whatever, that I must have done something wrong. Um, because actually what, what we see in the New Testament is just as you said, when, when truth is preached, someone is inconvenienced. Beginning with Jesus, who said very plainly, don't be surprised if the world hates you. So uh, the reason I say all this, I think that the church is in danger of assuming that we, we should judge our effectiveness by the response we're getting. And that's not a biblical way to judge our effectiveness. We have to judge our effectiveness by our fidelity to the word of God, our faithfulness to God, and yes, our our love for people as we are exercising that fidelity and that faithfulness, but still going to be plenty of times we're going to be um, uh, rejected, vilified, hassled, criticized, and you know what? I think it's going to get worse. I really do. Um, Barring a miracle, the trends we're seeing in our own nation are absolutely towards um, um, tyranny. They, they really are. And the powers that be in the culture are taking a tyrannical position uh, towards people who hold traditional conservative views. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Um, do you know who Dr. Stan Monteith was? Boy, that name rings a bell. He, 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 um, 
He was on Radio Liberty many years ago. He used to open a show this way, bringing you the story behind the story, the news behind the news, hoping to convince you that reality is usually scoffed at and illusion is usually king. But in the battle for the survival of Christian civilization, it will be reality and not illusion or delusion that will determine what the future will bring. You remember this? This is good. Gary, yeah. Gary Glum, he wrote the book. Um, having he, He's the guy that exposed how the AIDS was actually developed and targeted the gay community. And Dr. Stan Monteith was the one that left his practice as a doctor, and he uncovered this, and he... he that's do, where I knew the name from initially. Yeah, yeah. He would do shows like this. Well, I ran across that quote a couple of days ago because I actually got to interview him before he died, and and I listened to the interview I did with him, which was seven years ago. I think it was seven years ago. And in light of the the vaccine mandates <laughs> and everything, it was scary listening to what he was saying seven years ago and watching what has unfolded before us. Right. Um, You know, I liked your point about Christian persecution. You know, if we are a jerk and I know some Christians that represent this issue who are class, you know what, jerks. And I'm like, okay, we've got some pros out there. Right. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you and this is what the media will say. Oh, this is how all Christians are and everything. And I'm just like, uh, and admittedly, I'm, you're a little bit older than me, I think just a few years. Um, I've got a few years on you. I'm 67. <laughs> okay. I'm sure that probably when you were my age, you might have been a little bit more rough around the edges. <laughs> I mean, I, I know when, you know, 20 years ago when I started doing this show almost, that, man, I was just rah, rah. <laughs> Maybe it's hitting middle age and menopause. I don't know. But I've, it, I've learned some stuff over the years and try not to be as offensive as I was. But I won't compromise on the truth, you no. know. And so my question is, we can't compromise on the truth. But the first thing is we have to know the truth biblically. And what I've seen, unfortunately, is there seems to be a breakdown in the church about even teaching the word of God, let alone teaching people that this is the issue. And I mean, I could tell you some of the stuff I do here and with our ministry that has, you know, I've seen fruit just from people reading the word of God, not studying it, just reading it. People have gotten delivered. How, how do you, how do we, how do we do, how do we, what's your suggestion for trying to get people more engaged biblically so that they have the, the spine to stand up in this culture? Let's take a hard look at this as a mandate also for any kind of health within the church. Um, I believe that biblical discernment is like our immune system. If you, um, if you, you mentioned AIDS, so that's why I'll bring this up. If, if your immune system is broken down, the terrible thing about AIDS is that diseases that otherwise would not affect you will affect you and they'll even kill you which is why people don't technically die of AIDS. They die of the diseases that they are now susceptible to because their immune system has been compromised. Biblical discernment is very much like that. There are false teachings, heresies, weird ideas, secular theories that would not affect a well-grounded Christian if their immune system is intact. But if they are not students of the word of God, and when I say student, I don't mean theologians. I mean, a student is a reader, okay? Um, I'm a student of Charles Dickens. I am not a literary scholar. I'm not. But uh, I read Tale of Two Cities all the way through probably once every two years or more often. Okay, I know that book. I know it real well. Am I am I an expert on Dickens? No. But I know that book because I love it. And I always get something more out of it. And I read it a lot. And so I could talk to if you came to me and you said, according to A Tale of Two Cities, Um, Lucy Manette was a drunk who liked to beat people up. I would say, no, no, no. I know that book very well. And I know that that's not what it says. Okay. That doesn't make me a Dickens scholar. It just means I'm well-versed in the book, not because I'm smart, but because I'm phoretic. Same is true with biblical discernment. If people are taught the importance of reading the scripture daily, and taking the word in, which is transformative, absolutely. When I repented, Stacy, I couldn't get enough of the word. I mean, I was hungry, and I felt that you know there was there there was the need for truth in my life, and there was also that Rama God speaking to me 
as I was studying the logos, which is the grounding, the word that's been already revealed, wow, that was transformative for me. And it, and it also equipped me with, with biblical balance, a biblical worldview. When we have that, we're not susceptible to extremes or to errors. We're not susceptible to extremes as either being too heavy on grace or too heavy on truth. And we're also not susceptible to doctrinal errors. And that really brings up what I think you brought up, which is critical. I often say we've got a threefold job description, know the word, live the word, express the word. We've got to apply ourselves to knowing it. That's why I will go to my grave or to the Lord's coming, blessing Chuck Smith Mm -hmm. for being such a faithful expository Bible teacher. I mean, we were at Calvary night after night learning the word verse by verse, okay? It didn't produce a bunch of theologians. It produced a lot of believers who knew the word and were therefore rightly able to discern what's true and what's not. That meant knowing the word. Then living the word. Now, back to what you said, a big weakness in the modern church, many people don't know the word. Another weakness in the modern church, a lot of people know the word, but they're not living the word. So what have we got? Well, you know, it's dirty. It's not a secret, but it's a dirty fact of modern Christianity. You got a ton of guys addicted to porn within the church. A lot of Christian couples who aren't married sleeping together. Um, A lot of problems with uh, abuse of alcohol or with chemical dependency or with, I mean, who knows what? There's a lot of sin going unchecked because people know the word, but they don't live the word. They're not being conformed to it. A third common problem, a lot of people who know the word and praise God, they live the word. They're timid to express the word. They, they, They realize, as we all do, you know when you're in an environment that is not friendly to what you believe. Yeah, <laughs> And so there's a natural sensitivity. Now, I think that should be there. If I travel to an area, just for example, that is largely populated by Latter-day Saints, by Mormon people, I realize that I'm in a territory that does not agree with much of what I believe about Scripture. I'm not going to go out of my way to say, um, could you get me a cup of coffee, you who don't believe in drinking coffee? And by the way, I don't believe in Moroni. Well, that's stupid and it's arrogant. I'm not going to do that. Right. But there is a place for being honest about what we believe, expressing the word, speaking when we need to speak to the culture, speaking within the church, discipling people, preaching the gospel. That's Those are the three areas I think we're falling down. We're either not knowing the word or we're not living out what we know or we're timid to express what we live and know, but we don't want to say it. And I think if we can nail those three down, we're going to be in, in, in a much healthier place, no matter what direction the culture goes. Yeah, I agree. And that's my heart, too, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I get asked a lot, and it doesn't matter where I'm at. If I'm in a networking group for my other company that I do, I always talk about Jesus at the end. And and I, and I and recently I had somebody take a, try to take advantage of me with uh, some bill or whatever. And, you know, I shared with the the community I was in, and I'm in Tennessee. Now, <laughs> people go, oh, you moved to the promised land. Uh, if you if you want to see cultural Christianity at its best, uh, <laughs> move here. I was shocked. I, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. I got saved in California. Uh, you know, like you, I got grounded in, uh, well, I actually went to the vineyard for a while and then right. went to Calvary Chapel and stuff. But, you know, it, it, I always was in the word. God gave me a love for the word. Um, but, but I came here and one of the first questions people said to me here was, well, where do you go to church? And I'm like, well, I, I actually don't go to church. But then I started finding people that went to church and I started going to church and I got involved intentionally outside of the church community so I could reach more people. I love pickleball. Don't judge. Uh, but I play pickleball and I've learned that, you know, um, Christians drink here in mass. Like you would not believe. <laughs> I mean, I didn't believe I came from California, right? Liberal California. Right. And I, I had, you know, I had to do this anyway, getting back to my thing. So I was telling the network community that, you know, you know what? God loves you and he will defend you. Well, I remember after this meeting, when a, a lady came up to me, and she goes, I don't believe in God. And I said, okay, what happened? 
Uh, and then she started telling me about how she was hurt in the Pentecostal church. And I said, okay, I get that. Why don't you just go back and read the Bible? And at the time, I was wearing a Psalm 119 necklace, and she asked what it was. And I said, it just says Psalm 119. Have you read it? Because that's an awesome psalm all about God's word. And if you read it, it will just give you a hunger and a love for God's word. And just look at what Jesus says, right? Go read the Gospels, read this psalm, and then think about him. Because what happens is people get this idea. And, you know, and you might disagree with this point. I've also had people say, well, there's so many hypocrites in the church. And, you know, hypocrites is the problem with the church. And I don't believe that per se. What I think is, I think that there are people who are in the process of sanctification, honest people. Maybe there's a handful of people that are genuine hypocrites. They're up there preaching against pornography while using it. That happened at the vineyard in Anaheim. We know that. But most believers I know that are honest and they're doing, they're walking through sanctification, they might fall and stumble, but they're not out actively out there being right. a hypocrite. Um, right. And, and I don't personally know any, you know, even here that I know I go, okay, this is, this is what you are. The Lord hasn't convicted you of this yet, but maybe he will. Um, and so, you know, I try to tell people, look, if you're bold in your faith, the only way you can be bold is if you know God's word. Yeah. Honestly, if you listen to these teachers though, that, that come up with the gay gospel and stuff like that, it's like, okay, where is that in the word of God? And I actually just had a friend of mine admit to me who's on that side. We're good friends. She's probably watching, but she's on that side. And she actually just admitted to me, I haven't read through the Bible ever, the whole thing. Wow. I'm like, I'm not shocked by that. <laughs> Even though, you know, so. Yeah, you know, I, I love the point you're making because I've that's kind of been a... Um, soapbox issue to me and uh, something I've always disagreed with when people talk about so much hypocrisy in the church. I I will admit that there is an unacceptable level of failure in the church, but that technically that is not hypocrisy. A hypocrite is acting like she or he is something that she or he is not. I mean, that's, if somebody is honest about the fact that I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm a sinner and I struggle and sometimes I mess up and then that person messes up, that's not a hypocrite. Now, that's not to say that messing up is okay. I'm only saying that the way people say that, oh, there are so many hypocrites in the church, they make it sound like there's all these people in the church who are actors, which is what a hypocrite really is. It right. means you're wearing a mask, you're an actor. They're not. Now, and, and like you, I have certainly known people who have messed up, and uh, I'm at the top of the list. I don't know anybody who messed up as badly as I did. So I, you know, I don't have any stones to throw. But I have not personally known anyone who was really pretending to be something they were not and then got found out for it. I know that happens. I'm only saying that I I think the word gets overused. And I think it's one of those words that gets thrown out to sort of neutralize or distract because it distracts from the real issue. If there are a lot of hypocrites in church, well, what does that say? That Christianity is invalid? No. Says that a lot of people give lip service to it, but they're not really living out what they believe. So what? That doesn't disprove the claims of Christ. So I think a lot of the modern conversations we're having, and this is something I tried to point out in my book, you want to kind of get to the um, what the illogic of some of the arguments you're hearing or ask if you can reason with people about these points. Because like when somebody says, I don't go to church because I had bad, or, or I don't believe in God because I had bad experiences with Christians. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, I want to sympathize with that. Yeah. Because I think that's terrible. And I don't, I'm not going to apologize for somebody else's sin, but I will say, I am sorry to hear that you have been through this because it sounds terrible and I'd like to hear more about it. And then I really need to shut up and listen. Right. And I want to show that, oh man, somebody was abusive to you. Somebody came down on you. Somebody was legalistic. Somebody treated you badly. Wow. That matters to me. I wish that had never happened to you. It shouldn't have happened to you. But then we kind of want to segue into, but what does that say about the truth that is preached within the church? Because those are two very different things. If a doctor teaches or exhorts or preaches good physical health, and then that doctor also chain smokes and overeats and drinks too much, what does that say? That there's no such thing as good health or that he is not living up to what he is preaching? Well, that's what it says. So uh, I'm, I'm with you. I, 
I, I once had a really angry lesbian activist come into a church I was speaking at and disrupted the whole thing with a bunch of her friends. They were called the lesbian adventures and they just took over. So security came in and while security was coming in, she was screaming in my face and I couldn't get anywhere with her. So I just said, would you please forget about me? You think I'm terrible? Okay, I am terrible. I, I could tell you more about my terribleness than you could. But what about Jesus? Would you go home? grab a Bible, and just look at what he claimed about himself and what he promised and what he will require. That's all I'm asking. Just do that on your own. And and then ask the God you don't believe in if he would reveal himself to you. And darn it, about, I think about five, six years later, I'm at a conference, and this lovely young lady comes up who's helping with registration. She had done that very thing. Hmm. And got home and come under conviction, joined a church, got baptized, and so forth. This is why I say, Stacey, you know, the message we have is a life message. This isn't just a principle that we're throwing out there. The gospel is still alive, and people still respond to it, however crazy cancel culture gets. We do need to be more fearless, but we also need to recognize the impact of the gospel is not going to be dependent on our fearlessness. It really isn't. The gospel still works. People will still come to Christ and people will still be sanctified. And by the way, in these crazy times, okay, um, it makes no sense that I'm, it makes no sense that I'm in business. I work all week with men and women who want to repent of what our culture is celebrating. Why is that even happening? It makes no sense because these days there are so many options. If somebody wants to come out as gay, my word, Mm-hmm. There are plenty of resources for them, plenty of community for them, plenty of advantages that they can have. Why would they bother? Again, it makes no sense except for the call of the gospel and the fact that people still respond to that calling. So by rights, I should be working at Kmart, and yet, you know, here I am. Um, but that's why, and that's why I say our message is not our message, so to speak. It's his message. It's been entrusted to us, and it still works. It still gives life. It does. Um. <clears throat> Kmart still exists, huh? <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, but um, I've been reading through Jeremiah. And this morning, the good old prophet Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern filled with mud. Why? The, the reason why is because he told the king something he didn't want him to hear, right? And the, and the king was like, well, pretty much this is my revision, you know, this, you know what? I don't like that. So, you know what? You're going into the cistern filled with mud. There's going to be no water, no food in there. Just so you know. Well, he has this other guy come with some weird name. I can't remember and says, Hey King, you know, Jeremiah didn't really do anything wrong. You know, don't you think you're overreacting a little bit? And the King's like, eh, all right, go get 30 men's and we'll go ahead and we will pull the guy out. Right. So, so he pulls Jeremiah out of the cistern, and I can just, you know, the way the text talks about how he put the, these ripped clothes under his thing and just big, pulled this guy up, you know, he's pulling him up, took 30 guys to pull him up, and I'm pretty sure Jeremiah wasn't some fat guy. I think he was probably thin because it said in the previous chapter he was eating bread. Um, oh. You know, he probably wasn't on the keto diet, no. just saying. Anyway, long story short, the king then says, hey, you know what? I want to have a private conversation with you, but you have to not tell anybody about this conversation. (laughs) And he inquires again, what's the Lord say? And the Lord, you know, Jeremiah's like, are you sure? Because you're going to have me killed, you know? Mm -hmm. So Jeremiah was really bold with that king. And I, I noted that because I thought he, here was a guy who was called of God to be a prophet to, he was told ahead of time, nobody's going to listen to you. And these people didn't. Uh, and sure enough, the king did that he was stupid and Jerusalem was destroyed. And so was the king because he wouldn't just do what he was told. My point in sharing that is that we need more people like Jeremiah today. I think you're one of those guys. Um, you're not going to back down because people don't like the message. Um, and I know you end your book talking a little bit about, um, you know, how we're going to pay a high price um, yes. for the gospel. And I, I used to write the voice of the martyrs persecution blog i did that for eight years Ooh, yeah so i know a little bit about persecution i had Nag- sure. nagme um panahi pastor saeed's ex-wife on the show a couple weeks ago talking about some stuff and one of the things that she pointed out was that you know the church can go ahead and, and we can do james 127 which says to 
have distress, you know, to help the widows and the orphans in their distress. But what we forget is to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Um, how is those of us who are trying to do that last part, how are we going to pay a high price for what we believe, you think? I, I think the high price we pay will be for the distinctives we believe as Christians. And the reason I say that is I think in this time, if you just say, I love Jesus, I don't think that's going to be a problem. If you like to sing Amazing Grace, if you quote Psalm 23, I don't think anybody's going to really give you too hard of a time. I really don't. But if you hold to biblical distinctives on the definition of marriage and family, the fact that we are born male or female, and that is an immutable assignment from God, the fact that life within the womb is life within the womb, the fact that um, there is such a thing as judgment coming, that there is only one way to know God. If you hold to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, if you hold to the teaching that humanity is not essentially wonderful, it's valuable, but it's not wonderful, it's sinful. If you hold to those distinctives, that's where the controversy is coming. You are going to get pushback. And I think what what we have to realize is uh, those distinctives are hills to die on. Mm -hmm. I think there are hills not to die on. Okay, I mean, there are other doctrinal truths, right? Uh, Somebody's right about the rapture of the church. Right. <laughs> Pre, mid, post, trib, I, you know, I mean, we can argue about, we can discuss that somebody's right about eternal security. I'm not going to break fellowship over that. I don't call that a hill to die on. Somebody's even right about, you know, should we drink? Should we go to movies? Should we dance? I, you know, I mean, I can't, personally, I'm, I'm not uh, very legalistic in those areas, but I respect mm -hmm. people who have very strong opinions on them and, in my church, I'm an elder. We take a no alcohol pledge, no problem. But all I'm saying is those are, are, are Christian liberty issues. There's room for discussion. Um, these are not negotiable doctrines. And these are the very doctrines the world is pushing us on now. The culture, you, you brought up the age factor. When I was a boy back in the early 60s, the church and the culture were largely on the same page on moral issues. That is not to say the culture was Christian. But the culture was pretty much on the same page on these points, on adultery, fornication, sexuality, and so forth. So what you heard preached Sunday morning, it was reinforced in school, believe it or not. On television, believe it or not, there was a time. Um, and, and even it, when, when Christian teaching was disagreed with, there was respect for the fact that there can be disagreement. Now, the cultural influencers news media, entertainment, psychiatry, education, the influencing institutions all shifted away from traditional Judeo-Christian positions as the, the culture shifted further and further from an acknowledgement of and respect for the Judeo-Christian worldview. And as a result, what happened? The influencers influenced the culture. The culture shifted and now here we are in 2021 after about five decades of that kind of shifting and the culture and its influencers especially are looking at you and me and our listeners and they're saying, you guys shift too. We shifted, now it's your turn. Now we're finding ourselves in a new place because we are accustomed to being in an America which if, if not in agreement with us, at least has taken a live and let live attitude, not anymore. And so we're not accustomed to defending what we believe. Right. We're not accustomed to having to experience pushback. And so I think we're kind of like people who never got into very good shape and all of a sudden we have to run a marathon. Well, good analogy. we're not prepped very well. Whereas Christians in other countries would look at what we go through and they'd say, oh, well, join the club. We, we've lived that way for centuries. Well, we right. haven't. Right. And, and that's why I think we're now sort of like... What the heck happened? Well, that's what happened. And so what I think we're having to do, let's get back to basics. We, we get back to the study of the word on a regular basis and an emphasis on that, emphasis on our prayer life, our communion with God, emphasis on accountability, because we all, let's be honest, it is not easy to be holy in the America of 2021. Nope. You get slimed every time you turn the stupid TV on. 
I mean, the, the way people dress Southern California, I don't know what it's like where you are, but boy, modesty is a dinosaur out here. It died a long time ago. So it's very hard to maintain your integrity morally. And that's why we need accountability. We need mutual prayer. We need to lean on each other. And then from that position, we need a fresh wave of what the early church had. They had a sense of urgency. And I believe we've lost that. If you read the book of Acts, we see urgency. Christians saw things with a wonderful simplicity. People were either saved or they were not. Something was true or it was not. Something was moral or it was not. And the message of salvation was so essential that they were, they were compelled to go spread it out and share it, no matter how hard the persecution got. And then the, the call for doctrinal truth and adherence to it was so strong that in the New Testament epistles, we read Paul having a zero tolerance for either heresy or immorality within the church. Yeah. So I, I think we need a fresh wave of that kind of urgency. And with that, then I think, yes, we can respond again. The goal we've got now, I believe, is not necessarily to turn the culture around. That's a wish. I would like to see that happen. Yeah. But that is not a goal. The goal is to be faithful in addressing the culture and addressing each other. The results are in God's hands. That's where I think we are. I agree. And you know what? I think people are looking. I mean, I can tell you in my business networking community, um, mm -hmm. just talking to people. I have a friend who we were talking one day about insurance and getting to know each other. And God came up. She was sharing with me her spiritual experiences with God and talked about Esther and the Bible. And next thing you know, she's asking me, she literally asked me, will you teach me the Bible? Would you start a Bible study? And I was sitting there. And well, I, isn't that every, every believer's dream? I know, right? Somebody and, asking you, hi, would you teach me the Bible? Yeah. And, <laughs> nice. And yeah. And so I said, okay. And she's like, okay, let's put it on our calendar. Let's invite everybody else in our networking group. And I did. And people started coming. And then COVID hit. And then we put it and then we did it online. You know, we're still doing it, but we walked through Revelation, a whole bunch of stuff. Anyway, my point is, is that people really will notice if you're walking what you believe and you know what you believe and you know why. I wanted to bring up um, one of the points here. You, you, you say so much that I just there's so much I want to ask you. you. You brought up the issue of psychiatry. Now, I know your background and my background, you're, you're way more clinically experienced than me. But what I will say is I've tried to explain to our audience how um, how homosexuality, just as an example, was removed out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, I have friends in grad school um, who who are, are not Christians. They, they went to Vanguard like I did, but they, they went as not a believer. Um, who, when I tried to explain to them how homosexuality had been removed and, you know, they... They're like, yeah, whatever, you know. And they kind of le leaned toward believing, well, it's all right or whatever. Um, but I guess my question is, what about pedophilia? Do you see that coming down the pike as far as that becoming even a more acceptable thing like homosexuality did? Because it was really, I mean, you talk about, I'm trying to think of the right word devious or clever or cunning how that whole thing came about to get psychiatry on the side of homosexuality as being normal you know what i'm saying here am i making myself i do okay and uh, <laughs> yes short answer i absolutely believe pedophilia is uh going to be something that that uh is going to be pushed and promoted and if current trends continue, I believe that it will eventually be accepted largely by the culture. Now, that sounds ridiculous and unthinkable, but a lot of what we're seeing today was ridiculous and unthinkable 20 years ago. Right. A lot of what we saw 20 years ago was ridiculous and unthinkable 40 years ago. Now, if, uh, I, I wrote, in fact, in my uh, third book called The Gay Gospel, I wrote about the trends within psychiatry to legitimize pedophilia and how that that the, the, basically the same playbook was being followed. Get some experts who start pushing for a revision of our understanding of something. Get them to say that it can at times be healthy. Get them to say that the people involved in it are not mentally ill. Get them to support it and then start exposing the public, basically inoculating the public to the concept itself. 
initially the public was not at all amenable to the concept of homosexuality but as more movies about it came out more songs more individuals coming out and claiming that they were gay the more the public got accustomed to it now uh, of course there is going to be more pushback uh, against the acceptance of pedophilia than there was of homosexuality because of the fact that parents still have an intrinsic sort of protectiveness of their children and of children in general but uh, I had some startling quotes from PhDs, professors, medical doctors, and sexologists who were saying, well, children are sexual, and sex between an adult and a child can be, I kid you not, the word used was character building, mm-hmm. that this is not necessarily something damaging and so forth. And so uh, if you have uh, like films that came out uh, oh, a couple of years ago, one called Call Me By Your Name, which uh, starred, I believe the man's name was Aaron Eckhart, a very well-known actor, in uh, a, a film about um, an adult who has a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship with a teenager and a teenage boy. And that was it was put across as a love story, not a felony, you see. And uh, besides all of which, yeah. can anybody really deny that we are sexualizing kids like crazy? Oh, my gosh. Oh, we, we pump into the school system. We teach them about sex acts many adults did not know about. They we, we allow them or even encourage them to dress like they're trying to sell themselves. Um, we, we are removing the protectiveness of modesty from them. And then we're shocked when somebody approaches them sexually, for heaven's sake. That's quite a double standard there. So uh, long answer, elaborating on my short answer. <laughs> yes, I believe pedophilia is going to be a wave uh, coming after transgender <clears throat> and, pol- and polygamy. But then I think will come um, the push to legitimize sex between adults and children. And I think that the more people who come out and declare that that is healthy and good, the more experts they get on their side, the more people boldly testify to it being legit. Um, if there, here, Here's the deal. Back in 1973, when homosexuality was um, uh, removed from the DSM, as you said, um, that was not because a bunch of experts sat down and had a discussion. The APA conventions got raided by activists who took it over and terrorized and bullied and intimidated until finally the APA started acquiescing and saying, okay, well, we'll reconsider where we stand. And then, of course, there was discussion as well. But basically, um, this was an intimidation move that a lot of people felt they, they were compelled to give into. And it started off as a move to just say homosexuality will no longer be considered abnormal, but if people still have a problem with it, they can get treatment. Not so anymore. Just look at all the moves to ban what they call conversion therapy worldwide. Same thing is going to happen on this issue. It will. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I've been saying this for years and I wanted you to say it. <laughs> so yeah. it wasn't just for me because, you know, um, I'm sure you, I know you're aware of beforeyouact.org, you know, which, which is the, the site where the, you know, the basically said the, they more or less said, look, Hey, you know what? Pedophiles are depressed, but they're not depressed because they're attracted to kids. They're depressed because they're depressed and, and therapists are not going to see them because they're pedophiles, but, but we need to make this legit and give them a, a safe place to come. <laughs> there you go. See, that's the same game book. That's the same playbook yeah. that gay activists used. And, and you know what? It works. It totally works, which, yeah, which, which is, which is insane because, you know, it goes back to the original beginning of the conversation, which has to do with your conscience. You know, I try to tell people all the time, look, you know what? God gave you a conscience. If it's a seared conscience, then this is, this is what you're going to look at. I mean, you know, I mean, just to the abortion issue as an example, a woman Women can have abortions for many reasons, and I can't judge anybody because I've never had an abortion, but I know that that goes against the natural tendencies that God gave women, which is to nurture, not kill, right? But we don't have people being that honest in saying that. You know, it's the same thing with, with homosexuality. It goes against the natural, our bodies, it just goes against it. And if you say, well that's the way it is, then you're considered a prude or an evil or whatever. And it's like, you know what? It's okay. When it all comes down to it, the enemy 
Satan. Um, and Janet Parshall taught me this years ago, you know, the image of God is in all of us and he wants to destroy us. That's what he's fighting against. The enemy doesn't love us. My pastor actually said this week, um, you know, I go to a Baptist church and my pastor, uh, J.C. Christian, I'm not making that up, Joe. That's his real <laughs> name. That's his real name. But he, he gets a lot of flack for that yeah, one. He, well, he actually yeah. said, he, you know, he said, look, you know, if you knew and you saw the damage from alcohol, then you would be like me and not want to drink it or advocate people not drinking it. Now, I understand that. And I'm like you. I'm, you know, I think people can drink if they want. But I also think that, you know, having worked with... <laughs> a lot of recovering drug addicts and stuff. It's not pretty. And and that's the end game. We don't see the end game. The enemy knows the end game. The wages of sin is death. He wants to kill us, period. But we have abundant life to give out, right, through Jesus. Yeah. Um, so I know I haven't even mentioned your website, joedallas.com. <laughs> hey, thank <laughs> through, you. I appreciate show. that. I've, I think it has been on your name, I, I hope. Um, yes. Okay, it has. It's been on the screen. But um I know our time's almost up, so I would love for you to, you know, just tell whatever you want to tell here at the end. <laughs> well, I, I think, again, we have a decision to make as to what we are really here for. Uh, I, I do believe that over the last few decades, as we became more seeker-friendly, as, as, as many of our churches became more seeker-friendly, as many of us became more sensitive to the fact that some Christians— have been inconsiderate and that we need to be more gentle and we need to listen better and we need to have more empathy. I think in the process of doing that, we got lulled into thinking our primary responsibility is to make sure that we're getting along well with people. And that if we do get along well with people, that means we have reached them. And that is not true. Right. When people have not been converted to truth, they have not been reached. Now, we cannot force that conversion, but I guarantee you that conversion is not going to happen if we will not assume our responsibility to speak truth and allow the Holy Spirit to do his job by confirming that truth in the lives of the people who hear it. This is what we are here for as ambassadors. Now, an ambassador should dress well and have good manners, but ultimately, the ambassadorship is about the message. What are you here to say for the person who you represent? This is our calling. This is our mandate. And the reason I wrote this book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, is because I believe we're in danger of abandoning that calling and ignoring that mandate. In this sense, I think we need to get back to work. I really do. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I am glad to have you on my side. Because <laughs> you're on God's side, you know, and, and you're a hero to me. Not, not, not like I'm not worshiping you or anything, but you are. You're like Jeremiah, you know, you're not going to, somebody can throw you in some mud and we'll get you out. You know, you're not going to back down because of the message. And it's like, um, we just need more men of God. Frankly, we need more men of God, period. But we need more that we do. masculine men of God who are going to get up there, tell the truth, and then do it in love. And, and I think you're doing a great job. So thank you, Stacey. Sure appreciate that. And I sure appreciate you having me. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Hey, everybody, um, go over to joedallas.com, check out the website, and uh, get his book. I guarantee you that it will be perfect for you to uh, read and then apply and then share with somebody else. And go over to his website if you guys need biblical counseling or anything like that. He has a whole bunch of stuff over there um, that you guys can benefit from. So go over there, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>